and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. We're living through truly extraordinary and historic times. Last Tuesday, a new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, was appointed by the Queen, the 15th of her reign. Just over 48 hours later, at 6.30 on Thursday afternoon, Buckingham Palace announced that Queen Elizabeth II had died peacefully at Balmoral. On Saturday, at St James's Palace in London and then all around the country, Charles III was proclaimed king. Politics is on hold, with the country adjusting to, perhaps coming to terms with, the end of a reign that had lasted for 70 record-breaking years, and the crowning of a king who, at 73, was the longest-serving heir apparent in British history to succeed to the throne. So, as the preparations for the late Queen's state funeral continue and the country follows the new king's first steps and statements, Inside Briefing has returned to try and make sense of what is happening and ask what this ending of an era might mean for this country. We're here in the IFG studio a few hundred metres away from Buckingham Palace and with the roads around us closing and lined with ever-growing crowds. Kath Haddon, our senior fellow and expert on all things constitutional, is here with us. Hi, Kath. Hello. And Maddie Timont-Jack, IFG Associate Director and the lead on a major IFG review into the Constitution, is here too. Hello, Maddie. Hi, Hannah. And I'm delighted that we're joined again by Stephen Bush, Associate Editor and Columnist at the Financial Times. Hi, Stephen. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Thanks for having me. Let's begin by looking back. Stephen, were you in the newsroom last Thursday? I was, yes. Um... And how did things play out? Okay, I think actually it may have may still have been while I was in leader conference and the first kind of rumours that something was happening uh, started, and then obviously the note was being passed in in uh, in Parliament, and then although actually the FT is far and away the most genteel and nice newsroom I've ever worked in, uh, as with all journalists, I think the first reaction people had was to swear. Um, the night, the exciting thing about being on a comment desk is you're obviously right at the sort of heart of the paper, while it sort of all has to be completely redone while. Um, so yeah, an awful lot of waiting. Um, yeah, while while the BBC was doing its kind of rolling, not quite an obit obit uh, moment, and then of course um, starting to talk over what we'd do in the newsletter, how we would cover things in the paper tomorrow, and then it sort of it sort of it felt when it happened, and it happened quite suddenly. Even though actually looking back, we'd had sort of a six hour run up, uh, and then of course uh, everything having to change in quite a quite a mad rush. And Kath, you've been thinking about this and preparing actually for this day for some time. What will it have been like in government? And we've heard a lot about the sort of plans, the uh, Operation London Bridge, it was called. This has been planned for years, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. I think they, uh, you know, they think the first plan started sometime in the 1960s, um, but revised and revised and revised. And, and, you know, these days, up until recently, those sort of re- revisions, rehearsals and so forth became ever more frequent. Um, people were talking about sort of doing it every sort of three months or so running through it. Um, I mean, similar to, to how Stevens just sort of outlined it for the press, the, the difference being, of course, inside government, they would have had much better knowledge about the exact state of health of the Queen. You know, the first we knew, see, they've been talking about mobility problems for some time, and that was the reason for her staying in Balmoral. But um, it was on the Wednesday evening when they announced that there wouldn't be the Privy Council we would expect for new cabinet ministers to be sworn in and to be given their seals of office. Um, And that was sort of a big moment, but we've had a few of those. So, in a sense, it could have been the same thing. So obviously, they would have had prior knowledge. Um, and I, I would expect, especially after that announcement sort of played out, 
basically would have got going because clearly inside government, you know, we now know that Liz Truss was told that the how bad the Queen's health was before she went to do the energy statement. So they they definitely would have been uh, basically starting the process uh, even before the announcement came out. So there was a, a bit more warning than, than say, for the Duke of Edinburgh, um, you know, a year ago. And even though the plans had been made over a period of years, they still need adapting in, you know, to the particular circumstances. I mean, this is the extraordinary thing about it. Um, you know, I was, went to do media last night and Green Park has suddenly turned into a massive media village. Um, and it, that happened within barely a day. I mean, I was there last Friday, there were marquees up and there was some security, but now it is just, I mean, completely transformed. And that kind of difference between you've got all these plans on paper and then sort of actually it all happening. We've, we've all seen it, just a hive of activity, even for today, the, the procession to lying in state, let alone, you know, what's going to happen on the day of the state funeral itself. Um, of course, once it meets reality, they always had a contingency plan if she died in Scotland. Um, that was Operation Unicorn, in addition to all the plans in London, Operation London Bridge. Um, but at the same time, we were told, you know, she might come back on the train. That changed. She was going to be flown back. There'll be all sorts of security issues that they're thinking about. The big issue is nobody knew how the country would react. So they didn't know what the numbers of mourners would be, um, you know, on things like coming down to lay flowers in Buckingham Palace or just the crowds just walking around as we've been seeing. So it's it, they've definitely just thrown everything at it. And it's, it's like basically, I don't know, putting together the Jubilee celebrations. You've got some plans on paper but you just suddenly have to do it in three days flat and we've already seen some the first innovation i guess from the new monarch um stephen the, his decision to televise the uh, proclamation what did you make of that decision um yeah it was interesting i mean i think in terms of maintaining the political project of constitutional monarchy i thought it was a very clever thing to do because um not only is she the longest uh, reigning monarch in the United Kingdom, she's, in terms of the 90 years when we've been a proper democracy, um, she's been monarch for most of them. She's defined how the role is done in the modern era. Uh, and, you know, the, the weird irony is that the original reason for the Accession Council is essentially to confirm the king's military supremacy and for the various overmighty subjects to go, yeah, okay, cool, we're fine with you. Actually, ironically, that's kind of what televising the accession council did. Those, okay, look, the face of the monarchy, the the, the monarchy sounds and looks um, different for the first time in most people's remembered lifetimes. But look, here's some actually reassuring pageantry. It's still the same. It's still this kind of reassuring sort of source of pomp and ceremony. Uh, so I think as, as well as it being, from a constitutional perspective, quite fun to see the inner workings, um, from a political perspective, I think it did a good job of bringing the country into um, the Caroline project, as it were, um, while still maintaining the kind of essential mysticism of the institution. So this is clearly a, a major moment in British constitutional history. Um, let's dive straight into thinking about the sort of broader questions that it raises. Maddie, in recent years, we've seen a number of episodes of the Queen being dragged closer into politics. Do you, is it your view that that, that is, there's a sort of just a blip that we've been going through in terms of the specific pol political situation? Or is this something which is more of a trend, something we, we should expect to see more of? 
So I think with that question, I'd focus more on the sort of minister's side of this rather than the monarch per se, because if you look back at the times when this has happened, and I mean, the time that the Queen sort of got closest into being dragged into politics was during the Brexit period, when the Prime Minister advised her to prorogue Parliament for five weeks, advice that was later found to be unlawful. You know, that that was sort of the closest period we got when there was a concern that actually should the Queen have said no? Should she not? What, what, how was ministers sort of treating the Queen? Were they getting to a point of embarrassing her? And there's sort of a, there's the central sort of premise that ministers don't don't embarrass the Queen. They don't drag her into politics. And that was the time when, as I say, we sort of got closest to it. There was also some speculation earlier this year um, when uh, Boris Johnson sort of very clearly didn't have the backing of his party, but there, he sort of there was some suggestion or speculation that he might try and call a general election to get around the the problems that he was facing when ministers were resigning when they, when he sort of as they clearly lost the support of his party and again there was some speculation that that might lead to the queen being dragged into politics i think that it's difficult at this stage to say that that was just a blip because of brexit or because of the specific personalities involved um i think that there is still a, a question about um how uh, the new administration is going to approach uh, sort of questions of standards respecting constitutional conventions and principles and, and what that relationship will be um but yeah as i say i think that's that question really at this stage relates more I think to the personality and approach of Liz Truss's government rather than necessarily the change in monarch per se Um, but I think at this stage it's basically too early to say. That's interesting so uh, Stephen can you take that same question from the point of view of the monarch do you think there is going to be any difference in the relationship between government and and the monarchy? Um, Well I think the one of the big differences is although yes um, the new king has said yeah, it's kind of gone. Actually, yeah, it's 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 a it's okay. In in many ways, he was kind of saying it's it's actually part of our constitution for the heir to to be mouthy about their various pet projects. Um, the fact that he has said an awful lot of things on the record before means that even if he does continue to be scrupulously silent, I mean, look, we all know that the king did not start, you know doing sort of somersaults when he heard about the fracking ban. So the the fact that there's kind of a body of kingly proclamations, as it were, that predates his reign is going to change the relationship. But I think also, crucially, the thing which drew the monarch into politics uh, was lack of a majority in parliament, true in the last two years, true in 74. Uh, it's probably still going to be harder for parties to win majorities. So they'll be, And also the other thing which brought the monarch into politics uh, in recent years was the Prime Minister potentially becoming unavailable for a prolonged period of time when Boris Johnson got sick. Now, given advances in medical technology, I think it's actually quite likely that in the lifetime of uh, Charles III, we will have another situation in which the Prime Minister is ill, temporarily unavailable, and suddenly the question of, okay, well, actually, who does appoint the desert? Yeah, yeah wh- whose job is it? is it to go because one of the things which has sustained constitutional monarchy is, yes, that Elizabeth uh, II was a very astute politician in her own right, but also that the monarchical powers of the prime minister for various reasons weren't called upon. They don't matter so much when you have a majority in parliament because the crown is therefore in parliament and not in Downing Street. And they don't matter as much um, in the days when, you know, the prime minister gets sick and conveniently for the operation of the constitution dies. I think neither of those things are as likely to hold under Charles as they were under Elizabeth II. Yeah, I kind of, I think that the question we're asking is, was played out in those two televised moments that we saw on Saturday, the first the Accession Council, and then uh, the the new monarch, King Charles's first meeting with Prime Minister 
truss um, because the accession council, it was an insight into a moment, but actually it's quite dull. Um, you know, when they actually got down to the business and Penny Morden was reading out all the different seals and how they would carry on. And there were all sorts of, you know, civil servants saying on my Twitter feed, why don't they just do it all in one, have one approved rather than read them all out. But there was just, he was just sort of going approved, approved. And he has very little agency in that moment. And I think that kind of punctures the mystique of the potential political influence of the the monarch because most of the privy councils where there are orders in council or, or any other business are actually quite perfunctory. Um, and, and that might sort of reassure some people, or it might make them think, well, actually, then what's the point of that? And it, it's clearly all happening in government. But the other moment was that first meeting. And I think anyone watching it would have felt intense awkwardness because, you know, it was awkward. But that was partly probably because there were cameras filming it. And you could tell from Liz Truss's point of view, Every time I have attempted a curtsy, I have not looked any better than, than she did attempting it, which is why I tried not to do it when I did meet a member of the royal family because I would have fallen over. Um, but it felt quite awkward. And even Charles, who was giving it quite a lot of gusto to try and get a, a repartee going, you know, there was still a bit of struggle there. So I think even when you think about what the weekly audience is like, you know, uh, the Queen was used to it, so used to it. She's been doing it for 70 years and she probably had some very awkward ones with Winston Churchill back at the beginning. Um, I think Charles will take time and probably more than one prime minister to get used to doing that. And that means that even if he does what, you know, the Queen supposedly did of bringing up issues, which is a sort of carefully raised eyebrow, as Peter Hennessy used to put it. Um, you know, he will take time to find ways in which he does, if he has an opinion, express it. Because he does have the right to, you know, as the Constitution says, to be consulted, to advise, to warn, etc. So it's not like it says he has no agency and no opinion whatsoever. Um, it's just this point that he's supposed to somehow stay apolitical in that, but that doesn't mean that he takes no interest in the affairs of the nation. It's just how he does it. So, on one level, the public might be reassured, and the other level, they might think, "Well, what's the point? You know, um, it, it's not as dramatic as we thought it was." But as you say, that is one of the main sort of weekly touch points between government and the monarchy. Stephen, one of the other things the Queen did so well was the sort of soft diplomacy aspect of being monarch. Do you think that will continue under King Charles? Well, you would assume that. Any, yeah, the political bits of government will want it to continue. As we're seeing with the sort of descent of essentially the whole world onto Westminster uh, for the funeral, the soft power of the Queen is a huge asset to the government of the day. The question again is, is in the past, uh, as, as Prince, Charles was not as relaxed about doing the, ah, oh, yes, it's wonderful to, 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 to meet this, you know, resource extracting uh, autocrat i'm so happy that you're here it's possible of course than 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 that will be a thing of the past it doesn't feel wholly likely to me and i therefore assume that there will be some slight friction about state visits but of course the other thing the other thing that will change is that as well as having to occupy the role that has been defined by her prince william has to occupy the role that's been defined by him Part, I think, of the reason why um, King Charles likes this slimmed-down monarchy is it gives the heir something to do. Um, but yeah, I think the government will want that will want that to continue. But it will, yeah, it's a learning process for everybody. 
Yeah, and it continues partly in not just the the king themselves. I mean, I remember, I can't remember if it was uh, Biden or Obama, but one of them sort of said, well, of course I want to come over for a state visit as soon as possible because she's seen so much history. You know, she's seen so many US presidents, all this kind of thing. So a lot of it was her. I think as, you know, following on from your earlier point, the funeral, um, all that's happened with the succession will convey some kind of sort of deferred or continuous majesty um, further majesty onto Charles of, of people will want in the same way as people are flocking to London now, you know, to see Buckingham Palace. It's not just about the Queen. It is also something wider that has, you know, the pageantry of all of this. Um, I suspect though still things like being able to come for a state visit and have a banquet in Buckingham Palace and all the other trappings of royalty will be as much of a draw. But I think this is a really interesting question actually not so much how King Charles is going to do his reign, but how the new Prince of Wales is going to do the King Charles reign. Because, you know, there was a lot of implication in, in the public comments thus far that, that Charles was expecting him to step up and that there was going to be a slightly, you know, expanded role. And I, I wonder, you know, that's going to be a soft power part of it as well, whether, um, you know, they will try and utilise the sort of combined might of, of both Charles and William to sort of draw people on things like state visits. And, and you wrote about this in your FT newsletter, I think, um, Stephen, this point that I th- think King Charles made in his first speech to the nation about the role of the Prince of Wales be- bring it, being to bring the marginal to the centre ground. Do you think that's something that uh, we're going to see the new Prince of Wales doing? Um, well, yeah, because he had... So as this is where I get my titles confused, but as the the Duke of Cambridge, I want to say, mm. um, he did talk a bit about mental health and a bit about climate change. Now, climate and the environment has been a sort of Windsor project, essentially for most of the last century, albeit mostly in a kind of conservation-y space rather than a climate change-y one. Um, I think... Well, this is this. I think is the interesting question. We we know not least because he said so publicly and said so in his diaries. Then, then as Prince Charles always feared that if you if the heir was an absence, it creates problems. Right? Mm. Then it, it's bad for the monarchy not to have a presence in people's lives because it causes awkward follow on questions like, well, wouldn't it be easier and better to have an either appointed or elected head of state if the only time the monarchy is in public life is these kind of crisis points every quarter century or so when it gets sucked into politics, that's a bit of a problem for the monarchy. So I think he will similarly try and find things that, you know, to use uh, the King's phrase, brings things from the margins to the centre ground. He'll obviously do it differently because he's a different person. Uh, there's a really interesting tidbit in a, an FTP since sadly I didn't write about the um, history of the Duchy of Cornwall, which at the end includes this remark from Prince William asked about how, yeah, would he run it differently? And said, oh, no. I'll just do it, do it like my father did, which may be him being polite, but that may speak to um, a difference in generations. And Prince Charles did, for good and for ill, think an awful lot about the role of being heir. Um, broadly, considering his approval ratings now, you have to say he did a quite good job of managing the politics of it. And Prince William perhaps hasn't. So it's, yeah, it's an exciting time. It's also, I mean, the Duchy of Cornwall has been a bit of a success. Yeah. Um, you know, I've got a Waitrose nearby and so I can't really avoid it. But um, um, but as, as as an environmental project and as yeah. a, you know, a corporation, as a sort of money-making project or rather a money-sustaining project, all these different things, um, it, it has in a sense been 
been a success. So I can see why he would want to continue it. But I think it's more the rest of the role that, and also how Wales reacts to it, because I think the first minister's already sort of slight remark of, um, you know, we didn't hear about it in advance or somebody briefed it or something like that. Um, but, but I think being made Prince of Wales has even more meaning now um, in terms of that sort of relationship with, with the devolved government and with the people of Wales than, than even when, you know, Prince Charles first was invested. Um, Stephen, what do you think about the Commonwealth? Do you think that is going to be very much a joint project between the new King and the new Prince of Wales? We saw the slight difficulties in the uh, the tour of the Commonwealth that uh, uh, William and uh, Kate embarked on this year? Yeah, I mean, that that's another really interesting question, right? Because the Commonwealth is under, obviously, the important thing from the continuity of government perspective is the pressure on the union, you know, actually, I was about to say, both in Scotland and in Northern Ireland, but actually in everywhere, there are pressures on the union of, of one sort or another. But um, the Commonwealth, in some ways, is sort of split between countries who have immediate plans to go, maybe this isn't working, countries which have medium-term ones, and Canada, whose constitution means them, yeah, actually, probably we would get rid of the monarchy before they did, uh, simply because there are so many veto players in the uh, Canadian constitution. But it will be a big part of his political project, we'll be holding it together, uh, Obviously, various ministers regard the Commonwealth as useful for both soft and hard power reasons. Um, I suspect, and given that the uh, the visit of the Cambridges did not go that well, that there will be some reconfiguration. Yeah, you know, there will. Well, there definitely was a post mortem behind the scenes of of that. Obviously, we've seen headlines about people in Clarence House getting their redundancy notices, which you'd expect, seeing as the machinery is moving from Clarence House to. Um, yeah, to, to Buckingham Palace. But it'll be interesting to see whether or not lots of the people who are leaving uh, the now King's employ end up in the new Prince of Wales employ. Um, because, yeah, he, he it is integral to their political project, right? The more of the kind of finery of the monarchy goes, the more all that you're left with is a bluntly suboptimal way of dealing with some of the leftover constitutional functions. And so it's very much in their interests, more in many ways than the Prime Minister of the day, to bolster things like the Commonwealth, the finery around it, mm. the whole sort of ceremony and mysticism of monarchy. That's a really interesting point. Let's move on and talk first in a very broad sense and then narrowing down much more to the immediate about what this all means, what the change of monarch means for the constitution and, and for government. Maddie, as I said at the start, you're leading a major review uh, of the constitution for the Institute alongside the Bennett Institute for Public Policy in Cambridge. And, and you've been looking at lots of aspects of the constitution that have been called into question in recent years. Does the death of the monarch raise new constitutional questions? Well, I think just just to start with some some general reflections, which I think echo exactly what Stephen and Kath have been saying so far, is that what I have sort of been reflecting on in recent days is just how much it's reminded everyone that we are a constitutional monarchy, that there is a monarch, mm. and that they do play a role. As you know, we've talked about the broadcasting of the accession, uh, uh, and you know, as I reminding the public that that there is a monarchy and that they they do play a role within our constitution, and that role itself will not change in the immediate, but with the change of personality, there might be a change in how there'll be some things that will probably stay the same, and we've 
discuss some of them. There are some where the personality of uh, King Charles might mean that he does things differently, you know, thinking again about, you know, the size of the royal family, the relationships that he'll cultivate, also the relationship with the public and how he approaches that. And I think that that's sort of a really interesting question about what that then means for the, the future of the sort of institution. There are also, I think, it doesn't necessarily change, but it does raise some interesting questions about what role the Queen in her sort of personality and, and in her person played in uh, supporting or, or uh, facilitating some of these other constitutional questions that have come to the fore. I think particularly thinking about the future of the union and and whether the sort of person of the Queen has managed to play a role. There was, again, there's been discussion about um, what her sort of comment made, I think, after a church service uh, in Scotland ahead of the uh, independence referendum in 2014, what influence that may or may not have had on the vote there. And I think that that's going to be something that's quite interesting and something that we don't necessarily know yet but I think does does sort of put pressure on some of these uh, constitutional issues and in maybe uh, new ways. I mean, the other other thing that I think that's also brought to the fore is, you know, again, talking about the relationship between the prime minister and the monarch, hearing these very interesting reflections from former prime ministers on the Sunday, mm. uh, on Sunday w- w- was fascinating to get an insight into that. But it, again, it sort of reminds, I think, some members of the public that there is a relationship that's quite crucial to how the UK is governed. And, and it might, you know, some people might question about exactly the future of that relationship and how that will unfold. So although I would say that in the media, you know, I'm not reshaping the scope of our review, I do think that it's something that we will be factoring in when we are thinking about uh, what what we sort of, uh, what the future of the constitution looks like. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Hannah, your piece recently talked about um, just because you've got a succession doesn't mean you need to have stasis when it comes to the monarchy. And I, I think this does allow us to start talking about, okay, what are the ways in which that can be formed? I think it's a really important point, actually, that just this is a moment of reminding people about all the different ways in which the monarchy touches, um, you know, the constitution and particularly touches the executive because, um, I think for a lot of people, you know, she was just ubiquitous and famous just for being the queen without really thinking about what it means to have a queen um, and, and what all those different sort of touchstone moments are uh, with government. And I mean, it's extraordinary, the sort of 10 days we've got and all the different things that are going on. And then you have to go on the media and explain sort of lying in state and the hundred, you know, or the thousand year history of the Westminster Hall and all these kinds of things. So it's it's a big reminder to a lot of people about the complexity of that history. Yeah, I think the other interesting sort of political dimension to all of that is that if we take the most recent round of prorogation, where the sort of the line lots of was, oh, he lied to the Queen. I think we all know that seeing as the Queen had more than two brain cells to rub together, then she knew, just as everyone knew, that um Boris, jo- the, yeah, Bo- yeah. Boris Johnson was asking for a power that, yeah, had been abused a bit by John Major in her reign, had been abused a bit by Clement Attlee in her father's reign, but then it was, uh, an, a, a, you know, a, it was pushing at the limits of, 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 of the Prime Minister's use of monarchical power. Um, but because of the sort of the brand of the Queen as an individual, I think people interpreted that as, oh, Boris Johnson's done something a bit sus and the courts have intervened, so it's fine. Yeah. But because we have had, as Manny says, this kind of, reminder that we have this thing called a constitutional monarchy and that does have political consequences it does uh, i you know if you imagine then then all of this is happening two years earlier and and prorogation is the first thing and the first thing that charles iii has to deal with i suspect people wouldn't have gone oh 
the king was lied to, they'd have gone, oh, yeah, of course, the king's gone, oh, that's a bit too difficult for me. Um, This is your problem, not not mine. And um, let's imagine what I think actually probably is still the central scenario for the next election, which is end up with a Labour government, but does not have a particularly large majority or perhaps has no majority at all. In that situation, things like Henry VIII's powers, things like the use of the prerogative are going to become huge parts of the toolkit for that Labour government passing and implementing its policy agenda. And that may mean that there is a lot more of the, oh, right, so the reason why we have this prime minister who has a huge amount of unscrutinised power is because of this thing that we've just had Mm. happen. So, yeah, obviously, we all find this stuff tremendously exciting anyway. But I think it, it does create a big difference in terms of the politics of it all, that we've had this national reminder that our constitution is a bit odd. Mm, it's a really interesting point. I mean, I've talked for ages about my sort of good queen theory, this idea that a lot of our constitution rests on the idea that she's so apolitical and it's safe to to leave these sort of grey areas with her. But actually, I think you're right. It kind of almost works in reverse as well, which is because, you know, she was a nice old lady and therefore it was a deterrent to drag her into politics or embarrass the queen or anything like that. Does that work in the same way when you're talking about King Charles? But also I think a point, Hannah, you and I have been talking about a lot and Maddie, we we talked about looking at it in the, the Constitution Review, which is the way in which concepts of executive power have shifted and, you know, an idea that has grown up lately, which is the government, if they want a majority, anything close to you know, they just get all of the executive power and they can do it how they like. Um, and, and actually when it's co-opting the power of the monarchy to do those sorts of things like proroguing parliament or indeed many of the other things where where the prerogative is really front and centre of that power, it does produce a very different dynamic when you've got King Charles, you know, with I think that his persona as king is still very much in flux. You know, we're still we're talking about the transition from the Prince of Wales persona into it, but I think it's still very much in flux. But I, it's not going to be the same as the Queen's persona, that's for sure. And, and the point you made there, Cass, was actually something that we were discussing here, and then Stephen very eloquently wrote about in a column, and we thought he must have been uh, listening in to to the IFG office, but uh, that the Queen actually has this reputation for having been completely apolitical, but she wasn't entirely apolitical p- political over the course of her reign if you if you think about it no i mean not obviously most recently and most significantly probably in terms of scottish independence but also maintaining the powers and but you know maintain maintaining the the monarchy also you know, uh you know non-intervention is also a decision with with consequences right it was a political decision in 2010 for the for the monarch not to be involved at all. Almost certainly the speed of those coalition negotiations, uh, well, they certainly did affect the out, not the final outcome in terms of a liberal conservative coalition. I think that for a variety of reasons, that was always inevitable. But in terms of some of the things that the two parties signed up to that they perhaps then regretted, that there was that there was an active decision basically go, look, well, we we do not want to be anywhere near this mm. up until the point that you have got a cast iron agreement among yourselves. We're not, you know, we will be screening your calls, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, yeah, obviously the decision to, you know, the decision to part, volunteer to pay some tax is a, was a political decision and very carefully maintained some of the various um, privileges uh, and statuses of the of the royal family. And I, I do imagine there are more political um, dilemmas of that kind coming down the track. You know, 2010 and 2017 were in some ways quite easy hung parliaments. Yes, no one had won, but there was a 
party which was clearly well ahead. If you end up in a sort of 280, 290 mm-hmm. style situation that again the the, the queen's uh, actual the, the crown's actual powers become uh, more real and also seeing as it feels likely we're going to have some kind of tax reform agenda on the cards again, then the question of how land is taxed, you know, mm. this thing, it, it does touch everything, right? Part of the reason why fracking is politically difficult in the United Kingdom is in the United States, if someone drills under your house and finds some gas, you get to keep quite a lot of the revenue. Whereas if someone drills under your house and finds some shale gas, then the Crown Estate gets it, right? The, these are quite big political um differences and touch onto the the powers of the the crown the fact that the duchy which as i said has been quite successful is now going to be run by something else so yeah there's yeah and part of her genius was um creating this idea that she was sort of the kind of approachable upper middle class granny who didn't do very much and actually of course she was an incredibly effective constitutional monarch who maintained the power and prestige of the house of windsor much more impressively than you know any of the other remaining european uh, thrones also and just to add i mean i think the other thing is that as you know, because of her personality and because of the relationship she had with the public, so many of these questions were just put off. Mm. And so we are now being confronted with questions that actually, I do think, you know, in very small circles, some of those conversations have, have been had, but they will come to the fore in a much stronger way, almost because we haven't looked at them for so long. So I do I do think that's something definitely in, in the coming sort of months, years, is going to become much more pertinent. And I think it's questions we can now have. I mean, you know, we've obviously been seeing the news with with um, people who are protesting the, the the monarchy. You know, not my king, calling for a republic and so forth. But there's a whole load of other questions about what are the right ways to reform, and is you know, should it be Charles alone who decides that? Obviously, he can do so in terms of the size of the working royals, the amount of money that they're spending, all these kinds of things. What he does with various parts of the estate and so forth, but. Questions that we're talking about, things like how a prime minister is appointed, these are things that actually I think Parliament needs to get into. We talked years ago about the need for an investiture vote similar to what they've got in Scotland because it just is one mechanism you could choose of, of Parliament affirming who has got uh, you know, confidence if there is some kind of confusion about it. And it just does feel like that's one area that you could probably tidy up a lot easier than than maintaining the system that we've got at the moment if we think it's it's vulnerable to all these problems. Okay, let's bring things right bang up to date in terms of the interaction between politics and the monarchy. The day that the Queen died began with Liz Truss setting out the government's massive response to the energy crisis, which must have been the largest ever spending commitment made by a government that then received almost zero scrutiny. Stephen, do we have any sense of how that's been received? Um, well, this this is sort of the interesting thing, right? Actually, she spent at least $150 billion and seeing as... Yeah, there is no. I think there's just no way that this idea they haven't in six months they're going to go. Ah, oh, we've decided some businesses are vulnerable, and we're going to start turning off the life support of the ones which aren't. It's never going to happen. So it's going to be much more even than 150 billion. Um, it clearly hasn't landed in the focus groups in the yeah in the polls and saying well just simply because people have been preoccupied. I think it's probably the bigger political problem for the prime minister is what has the big success of the Conservative Party, not just in the last decade, but over the course of its life. It's essentially been running on this ticket of only a vote for the Conservative can fix the problems left made by the Tories. You know, I've changed, I'm a new shiny Prime Minister. And I think it 
it's been quite difficult for her that the first thing that's happened is all of these lovely from a historical perspective, but these photos of her with these kind of unbroken line of other conservative prime ministers, it kind of makes it harder for her to do what Boris Johnson did so successfully and unhook himself from the 90s, what Theresa May actually did fairly successfully and unhook herself, you know, going all the way back to, you know, Macmillan and and home who did come very close to holding on in 64. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's it's definitely meant that it's received less scrutiny. I also think that it may end up being quite damaging in terms of the quality of the package. Right? Then we we have a story today that businesses have now been told they are not going to receive their support on time. Uh, I sort of feel that if Parliament were sitting, then probably there'd be UQs, yeah, there'd be UQs, yeah. and, and that that might then mean you end up in sort of a more sensible place where you go actually look local government is now very effective at handing out grants mm. let's do that whereas it does feel at the moment then as a result of parliament not being there the government is very set on this kind of oh well we've got this cunning plan for how we're going to intervene in the energy market without creating a cap regime for business and it's going to be a great plan just you watch but we might not be able to deliver it in time and um so as well as that meaning that Liz Trust doesn't get the political credit for this very ambitious, very large package herself, I think it also possibly means that in the end she'll have the political trouble of getting into a of, of launching a plan that would probably be better if there was that, you know, that mechanism of select committees, UQs and the rest, you know, kind of going, Hey, are you sure this is the way you want to support business? And just in a purely practical sense, Maddie, then it seems quite likely that I mean, if the House of Commons doesn't come back until the 17th of October, which is the current plan, there's going to be even more criticism around that. So we presumably must be looking at an a, a, a earlier end to the conference research. Yeah, it does, it does sound like government is looking at looking at that. As you say, Hannah, it, it does feel quite extraordinary to think how little Parliament has been sitting since uh, since July when the country is facing a very, very difficult winter. And so it does seem like they're coming back sooner, but conferences are still going ahead. So they are still going to be you know, returning next week for a few days and then rising again for for a few weeks so it, it's yes they're coming back sooner but that's still looking at sort of 10th 11th of October which is still quite a long way away mm. and Kath in terms of time the parliament's sitting and what the new government's going to want to get done mm. what's what are its priorities going to be Ah, oh, well, look, I'll come to that in a sec. I mean, the the thing I find fascinating about this, and I'm going to sound a bit like a, a sort of pedant on all of this stuff, but it's really interesting what we mean by government, because obviously Parliament's not sitting, and there are some really important consequences to that, particularly in terms of, you know, scrutiny of, um, you know, the energy measures you just put down. But go- government is still governing, and the, the key difference between now and before the trust government is that before then, you know, it was difficult for the civil servants to get decisions from ministers because they knew the government was going to change. Now ministers are getting red boxes, cabinet committee meetings are happening, the quad um, of, you know, Liz Truss and her sort of senior uh, three other people, they're all meeting. So government is doing some governing. What I think is really fascinating is that kind of like you take away some of the components that we're used to in terms of politics and government. You start to think, well, what role they play. So obviously a key one has been comms. You know, the government, one of the rules about the national mooring period is that the government just stops doing a load of comms. We've still been having sort of lobby briefings, but, you know, far fewer stories being briefed out to newspapers, um, you know, government not putting out the sort of range of press releases that it's doing. And for some people that makes them think, well, there's nothing happening. No one's doing anything. 
really important question about what that means in terms of the sort of level of scrutiny that they're getting at the moment. And then the second question is this point about Parliament not sitting. That doesn't mean that MPs aren't doing stuff. Like we've seen so many pictures of Keir Starmer stood, stood next to the Prime Minister or stood next to some. They're probably talking about lots of these things in the margins of all the other things that are going on. So it's a really interesting point about how the informal politics is sort of continuing and yet those formal parts of it. Now, I'm not saying that means everything's fine. Of course not. But I do think it's a really interesting one about which, what bits of it do what uh, and, and what kind of side of governing and politics continues under the surface, even when you're sort of not seeing it daily in the newspapers. And just coming back to the, the question of what the priorities are that they are going to want to land and, and get done in the next few weeks. Um the key thing I think we're looking for next week is uh, what is very ugly termed uh, a fiscal event, which is a financial statement. They're not calling it a budget because that would mean you'd need to get uh, the office budget responsibility to do their forecast and they're trying to avoid that. Um, but that is the key thing that we're, we're looking for. It's quasi Kwarteng's big moment. It is how are they actually going to be paying for this? And it is also a chance for people to see the numbers because, as Stephen has been saying, we are talking about huge numbers here. Uh, the government are now suggesting that that is also the moment they'll set out what support for business is going to be available. And again, it's only when you start to see the reality of these plans and people say, well, what about this? What about that? You get the kind of scrutiny that means that the government thinks, oh, God, we've not thought of that. And so that is really important. Um, so those are the sort of two key things that I think everyone is looking for next week. There will, though, undoubtedly be a whole range of other things because we were talking about all of the issues on the agenda. Fracking is one of them. Um, but, you know, the, the sort of energy security, but wider cost of living. Government's talking about growth that, the, you know, what they actually put out in that financial statement about sort of how they're actually planning on improving growth. All of these things are going to be really important, let alone sort of Northern Ireland, which is, I think, Maddie, sometime in October, they've got to either form an executive or it's... It's by the end of October that yeah. they have to form an executive or there'll be another election unless Westminster legislates otherwise, which, which they've done before. But also on Northern Ireland, there's also the uh, Northern Ireland Protocol Bill that is back in the Lords at, when, when uh, Parliament returns after recess. So there's a big question there about how, whether Liz Trust changes track uh, now that she's no longer foreign secretary she's now prime minister but how they're going to to sort of deal with the eu and that again comes back to some of the questions around growth and the decisions that the government is making economic decisions that the government's making yeah. um so so yeah there's there's a lot a lot coming down the track yeah it's going to be very interesting next week where it's suddenly sort of down with a bump you know we're back to business as new normal in terms of politics and it feels like nothing changed for two weeks but you know even a week ago which was you know, just after Prime Minister's questions, um, you know, the cabinet was still, or the government was still being formed. It feels like an age ago. So it's going to be really interesting what the tone of it all is next week as well. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is that the package, the energy package is designed from their perspective that so they want to get out from under it. She does not want her government to be a government about the energy crisis. So she wants it to be a big, we've done this, now we can move on to my preoccupations on, you know, growth, planning, um, now, all of which runs through some quite difficult internal fights in the Conservative Party. I think exactly as Kat said, there's going to be this big bump when we're suddenly back to politics as normal. I think the interesting thing is, I think while this also slightly blunts her ability to go, oh, I'm new, I'm a change from what's gone before, I think it probably helps her a bit in terms of the internal Conservative Party stuff that um, she feels like she's been Prime Minister for longer. I mean, she's been Prime Minister for a whole reign um, than... Yeah, it means that Rishi Sunak, who 
lost quite badly, but because he did better than the polls suggested, had this kind of aura around him of having had a close or a good result, feels more like a figure from the past. I think people who might have spent a lot of the last week fulminating about how they had been passed over in the re- in the government formation are instead going, oh, isn't it really awful what's happened? Mm. So it might slightly help some of the internal Conservative Party politics, which is the thing that, from her perspective, she has to get right in order to do any of the other stuff she wants to do. But it is going to be very strange for her and for everyone than yeah, because I think it really will be a sort of zero to 60 from where we all have to be very nice about each other to going, why is your plan so inadequate? Why is this happening? What about the you know, manifold crisis in health, policing, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, and then she's got a big moment. I mean, we know you, know, you only have to look at Theresa May to know how important first conference speech is uh, and how they can go disastrously wrong. Um, so I think, you know, as much as it is a sort of t- yet more time away from Parliament, in political terms, in party terms, the party conferences this year are going to be really important. I think we've established there's going to be plenty for us to talk about this autumn. And that's it for another episode of Inside Briefing. Many thanks to Kath Haddon, Maddie Timont-Jack and Stephen Bush. Great to see you again. And thank you all for listening at home. We postponed our events from last week, but we'll be resuming from next Tuesday. So do check out our website at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. We'll begin again with an in-conversation on Tuesday evening with Michael Cockrell, the award-winning BBC political documentary maker. And Inside Briefing will be back next week too. See you then.